Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello, Doncaster North. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm fine. I can't see you because you're on the campaign trail. Let me ask you this question. Are you wearing a rosette? Not at this particular moment. I'm not wearing a rosette. No, I'm not a great one for the rosettes. I'm more one for the stickers. Right. There's been this historic problem with Labour stickers, which they tended to fall off. But I think hopefully that's been sorted. What point did the rosette become unfashionable? Because you used to to only ever see politicians or Nookie Bear wearing uh, rosettes and then, then something changed. I'm extremely complimented by the fact that you think the fact I'm not a great one for them means they're unfashionable. It might mean that they're extremely fashionable. <laughs> I'll be honest, I was hoping you'd rise to the bait of the pop culture reference of Nookie Bear there, but you, 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 I don't know if it passed you by. Was it on ITV? Of course, you weren't allowed to watch ITV. I keep forgetting. Yeah. Um, so we're recording this on, on Halloween, and I guess the big question is, will you be out knocking on doors tonight? Oh, yes, I'm sure. I'll be dressed as Boris Johnson. <laughs> Uh, your door knocking never stops. But that's great because you might get given some free sweets and stuff as, uh, while you're at it. Yeah, my children were very, were very excited this morning about the sort of Halloween prospect. They, I thought they were going to go as Boris Johnson, Donald Trump, but they, I think they're going as Voldemort and something scary. Right. My first ever Halloween was in America when I was seven years old. And I remember going around... And I, 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 Halloween was not a thing here at that point, mm. or at least not my six-year-old self hadn't noticed it. And I remember going around, and, I, and I, I'm afraid the thing I remember is that there was some, obviously some people who were rather, what's the right word, curmudgeonly, and they gave out this kind of like goulash that they sort of <laughs> shoved into your bag. And they're like nasty goulash. Well, they spooned stew, sp- spooned stew into children's bags. Well, something like that. It was really was not pleasant. Wow. 
but but I remember it. I was just overwhelmed by it when, when I was seven. I thought mm. it was absolutely extraordinary. It just, you, but was it a thing when you were growing up? Halloween, like a little bit. So I remember sort of bobbing for apples and things. But I always say the thing that made the penny dif- for the guy yeah, was bigger. Wasn't it, it was bigger. There's not much penny for the guy anymore, is there? I think Halloween has superseded Penny for the Guy. Maybe it's because pennies are not sort of valuable, so valuable anymore. So it's sort of ten p for the guy. I think you're overthinking it. Maybe <laughs> inflation. <laughs> discuss discuss the sort of variable variables of inflation as it applies to Penny for the Guy and the problems therein. Are we setting? Sounds like a sort of econ- we, economics paper. We could set it as homework for the listeners. Actually, you know, we've got the ideal guest to talk about this issue. We've got a very, 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 very large-brained economist, historian, and I'm not talking about you. (laughs) Well, I am sure this is exactly what he would want to devote his valuable time to. Yes. Should I tell you what we're talking about then? Yes. And then I'll I'll end the suspense. Yes. Um, This week we're talking about a jobs guarantee, the idea that the government guarantees a living wage job to anyone who wants one at any time. It's an idea gaining traction in the United States with three candidates in the Democratic primaries, including Bernie Sanders, pledging some form of jobs guarantee. 1.3 million people are unemployed in the UK according to official figures, and that's the lowest official figure in 40 years. But millions more are classed as underemployed, meaning that they're seeking to work more hours than they currently do, or they're classified as inactive, so they're not actually working. A jobs guarantee aims to end all involuntary unemployment, as people could take a publicly funded job when they wanted or needed one. And supporters argue it would assist other goals because jobs could include enacting the Green New Deal, uh, helping to tackle climate, the climate crisis, or providing care work for the young or elderly. Now, talking of the big brains, we're talking to economic historian Lord Robert Skidelsky, who's written this extraordinary biography uh, of Keynes, John Maynard Keynes. And we're talking to him about the history of how governments have approached full employment and why he now supports a jobs guarantee to do this. And then American jobs guarantee expert Pavlina Chernova is talking us through her proposal for how it would work and the impact it could have. And then for cheerful people this week, we're going to be joined by somebody who's hugely impressive and has already made an enormous difference. Amica George, who you might know uh, from the Free Periods campaign. That is something that she founded. She's been a great activist and she's had great success. And she's going to be telling us how she did it. And, uh, and she's going to be inspiring us. So, Jeff, what's your reason to be cheerful? My reason to be cheerful is I have bought my Star Wars tickets for the final instalment of the, would you call it enoughtology? I'm not sure. Uh, but the, the final Star oh, Wars. What? Well, they're, they're, they're going to be, end up with the Star Wars films we grew up with, uh, are, are technically episodes four, five, and six. And then in the yeah. late 90s, turn of the millennium, they made these prequels, one, two, and three. Which you yeah. know the, to to so Star Wars the film was number four was it Yes exactly and then the ones that have come yeah. out in recent years have been yeah. uh, numbers seven eight number nine comes out at midnight on the eighteenth of December and I've bought my tickets already I'm going to go and see it with my brother I'm very excited Would you like to come with us No but that's really kind of you to offer Feeling a bit rejected right now Sorry I didn't I should have given the sort of grace notes I'm I'm really. delighted with the kind offer i think it's very very kind of you all right what's your reason to be cheerful then so my reason to be cheerful is that on saturday i i was actually in london and i went to the as it turned out the 10th anniversary of the finsbury park 
Parkrun, and there I met Paul Sinton Hewitt, the founder of Parkrun. Mm. He's just standing there cheering people on. And what's even more exciting is I've persuaded him to come to the Parkrun in my constituency in Doncaster North. Fantastic. I told the race organisers about it, and it's like royalty. So they're incredibly excited. I think he's just such an impressive person, and he was telling me all about the story of Parkrun and, you know, how for the first two years they just did the Bushy Parkrun, which is now 2,000 people a week, or at least reaches 2,000 people. I mean, I, I really was struck by somebody who was in it so much for the right reasons. Fantastic. but I mean, just like, just like you. Just like me. But we're all dying to know, did you beat your personal best? No, I had a, had a mare, actually. Head. You didn't fall over again, did you? No, but I had a sort of... I started off too fast, went too fast up the hill, and then I had to stop because I was just feeling sort of nauseous. Do you know what? I think the biggest thing we've learned from you doing part run yeah. is that no paparazzi photographers listen to this podcast. Otherwise, they'd be there every week trying to capture this stuff on camera. Yeah, I was looking pretty... <laughs> I was looking pretty sort of rum, I would say, by the by the end. <laughs> You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Now, I'm delighted to say that we're joined by, I think, actually one of our most distinguished ever guests on Reasons to be Cheerful, and and that is Lord Robert Skidelsky, who is Emeritus Professor of Political Economy at Warwick University. He's a crossbench peer, and he's written an an extraordinary multi-volume biography of Keynes. Robert, thank you so much for joining us. Delighted. Very happy to be with you. Can you just start as a bit of historical background, because you're an economic historian, just by explaining to our listeners the history of the idea of full employment, at least from the sort of before the end of the Second World War onwards, and Keynes's role in all that? Yeah, well, of course, the founding document uh, of post-war policy was the Employment White Paper of 1944 just towards the end of the war, in which the government, and it was a coalition government, pledged itself to secure a high and stable level of employment. So it pledged itself to full employment policy. That was the policy of of post-war governments until 1975. One recalls that the average percentage of unemployment between 1950 and 1975 was 2%. It never went above 2% in any year and contrast that with the, the, the record since then. Just to be clear about this for our listeners, the 1944 White Paper was a, a change, obviously, from what had gone before, that government had a role, and this is obviously relevant to our subject for this week, that government had a role in maintaining full employment, and Keynes was obviously instrumental in that. It was. I mean, I think there were two things. First of all, there was the very, very heavy unemployment in the interwar years. It reached, for example, in 1931, at the depth of the, the, the Great Depression in, in Britain, it reached 18%. And it stayed at well over 10% for the rest of the 1930s. And that was thought to be politically dangerous. And of course, Keynes was a big influence. His general theory of employment came out in 1936, in which he showed that government could a democratic government could maintain full employment. And he showed how it could do so. And that changes after 1979 and the election of Mrs. Thatcher. But coming up to the present, what would you say to those people who say, look, what's the issue here? Unemployment in the UK is what, something like 4%, 1.3 million people. Okay, that's a problem, but it's sort of down, significantly down from where it has been. Is, Is the job guarantee an issue for today? 
Well, of course, it's now 4%. And, 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 and as people have said, this is the lowest it's been since the 1970s. So over the whole period uh, from Thatcher through to really the, the mid-2000s, it was, you know, in the area of 4 5 and then, of course, um, in, in, after 2008, it, it, it doubled um, and, went, and went up to 7 or 8%. And, you, and the other thing one's got to remember, I think, is that 4% is really, that's headline unemployment. And it disguises the fact that there's a hell of a lot of underemployment around. And people who um, you know, aren't working as, as, as many hours as they want to, who are working below their skill level. So you, you really need to double that to get the full measure of, um, of, of, of um, the capacity that isn't being used in the economy today. The unemployment record is undoubtedly worse, considerably worse than it was during the Keynesian years. And I think I'm right in saying that there are 8.7 million people of working age who are not economically active. Now, not, maybe not all of them are going to be working, but there are millions of people that we're talking about now, you've written about the case for a jobs guarantee. Talk to us about the sort of principles of this and why you think it's a good idea. It refers to something you mentioned earlier, which is why, why after 19, uh, mid-1970s did the old job guarantee, the full employment policy uh, of the Keynesian period, why did it fall into disrepute? I mean, one of the reasons was, and this was the, you know, the argument of people like Milton Friedman, was that it had this discretionary element. Um, governments you know, were expected to vary their spending um, with the business cycle, spend more when there was a down downturn less than there was when there was an upturn. But of course, um, the, the charge was that it uh, led politicians um, to spend too much. They were happy to increase their spending um, uh, and, and run deficits, but um, they weren't happy to reduce them. And the advantage of a job guarantee program is it would be automatic. One's got to think about um, a, a, a public job guarantee as, as a kind of buffer stock, which goes up and down automatically according to the demand for labor. And so politicians, um, once they've set it up, they can't tamper with it very much. And so that answers one of the charges against um, Keynesian policy, that it simply was an excuse for vote-seeking politicians to make huge spending promises, and uh, they could never then rein them in again when, when, you, when they needed to. Just explain to us, so just because some of this can be quite technical, the, the jobs guarantee in your vision would work how? These would be people employed in the public sector? There'd be a guarantee of a public sector job um, whenever someone seeking work couldn't get a private sector job. In other words, it would apply particularly to periods of downturn when, when businesses were laying off workers and normally they would then go on to, um, on to benefit. Um, and this way, um, they would be... Uh, offered a public sector job, um, they would be guaranteed it. And that would be a big change because it would abolish unemployment. I mean, there would be no more involuntary, unwilling unemployment for the first time since the Industrial Revolution. I mean, that's a huge, huge change. And just to be clear about what it is that we'd be offering people uh, in your vision, I mean, presumably your argument is there's lots of important jobs that need to be done in the public sector. 
I think this is a decentralized system. It's, it's something that would be paid for, of course, by, by the state budget, but it would be organized by local communities. And uh, lo- local communities, what I would sort of want to happen, ideally, is um, that they should set up job banks um, you know, in job centers um, so that um, they would have a portfolio of jobs that what needed to be done in the community as and when labor became available to do it. Uh, so you wouldn't um, sort of start saying, oh, God, look, we've got all these unemployed people. What are we going to do with them? Well, there are lots of leaves on the street. Let, let, you know, let them scoop them up. I mean, you wouldn't do that. In every community, there are things that are very well worth doing, whether it's caring or cleaning or greening, um, which aren't being done. That's the way I would see it. I'm not thinking of grand public work schemes like building railways and things they're obviously national but i'm thinking of local things and i suppose what's particularly interesting about your work on this is that you have also combined it with an interest in the four-day week reducing working hours uh, in a report you did for the shadow chancellor john mcdonald just explain to us how the two things fit together First of all, um, I think by abolishing insecurity. Insecurity is one of the things that um, causes people to cling on to ours for dear life. And if you get more secure jobs, um, that, that would reduce. I think the other thing is that in the past, trade unions were much stronger over the private sector economy, and therefore they could press for shorter hours as part of sectoral wage bargaining. Unions are much weaker now, so this is a legislative alternative to what was often achieved by um, collective bargaining in the past. And so your basic argument is greater certainty that there would be employment will make people less anxious about reducing their hours for fear of losing work and ending up sort of unemployed and and without means to 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 properly support themselves and and therefore and as well as as well as strengthening unions so so, and and therefore it would the two go together basically you've said it that's it to my mind, the exciting thing is, you know, ever since the Industrial Revolution, we've had um, this uh, phrase which uh, uh, associated with Marx, the reserve army of the unemployed. The reserve army of the unemployed has always been there. It's always reappeared uh, periodically uh, as a way of disciplining the workforce. And now you're going to abolish the reserve army of the unemployed. There's not going to be a reserve army of the unemployed any longer. And that's going to alter the power balance in society and the, and the whole of a people's attitude to work and leisure. People for the first time will be able to take advantage of um, productivity gains, of automation, in order to think of a life that doesn't involve so much time having to earn a living. Um, I think that's incredibly exciting for me anyway. Is part of the importance of this debate about the job guarantee re-establishing the Keynesian principle that or the 1940s principle that government must have responsibility for full employment it is it's doing it by a method that avoids some of the traps 
traps that I think um, Keynesian policy fell into. But as I see it, you can't leave the livelihood of people entirely to the market and just say, we will accept whatever results the market grinds out. That is abnegating what government is for. Government is there to protect its people against misfortune and calamity to the extent it can. And if it fails to do that, well, then, you know, it doesn't deserve to govern. So, so we have a thing on the podcast. It's your classic utopia question. In this instance, I am installed as a benign dictator. It's the Jeffocracy. If we were to uh, appoint you minister for employment, what, it, what is the first thing you would implement on day one? I would ask all local authorities to start job banks um, and assemble portfolios of jobs that needed to be done in the communities so that when the need to activate the public job guarantee scheme um, came about, they wouldn't be saying, scratching their heads and saying, what jobs have we got? There are no jobs, we'll only pretend work. They would actually have jobs to put people into. So that's what I'd do at day one. It's got to be prepared. We have to prepare for the next downturn and we have to prepare fast because I don't think the next downturn is going to be that far away. Robert Skidelsky, thank you so much for joining us. People should read your biography of John Maynard Keynes. They can look at the report you did for John McDonnell, which will be, we'll post a link on our website. But for now, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for asking me. To talk to us now, we have Pavlina Chernova, who is Associate Professor of Economics at Bard College in New York. And Pavlina is the author of a book which is coming out called The Case for a Job Guarantee. So, Pavlina, thanks so much for talking to us about this idea. And since the book is called The Case for a Job Guarantee, how do you fancy making the case, doing us the elevator pitch? Happy to do it. Thank you for having me, Jeff. Yeah, the, the, the job guarantee is not really a new proposal, but it keeps getting reincarnated. It was enshrined into the uh, Universal Declaration of Human Rights, um, the right to a job. And so we have um, periodically um, returned to this idea that anyone who wants to find work and well-paid work should be provided that opportunity. There are many countries around the world that have this right to work enshrined into their own constitutions, but the mandate remains unmet. How does it work in practice then? It becomes not just the responsibility of the private sector. That's correct. The private sector on its own devices does not create full employment in the sense of providing job opportunities to anyone who's seeking them. And that's really not their, their, their job. That's, they're not in the business of doing, of doing that. Obviously, the private sector um, has to manage its uh, profit motive. So the public sector provides the base job, the public option that provides a, shall we say, living wage alternative and, and thus it has to be a publicly funded program. So if, if I'm unemployed and I'm currently looking for work and I'm claiming some kind of welfare, like a job seeker's allowance from, from the state, am I obliged to take one of these jobs under the jobs guarantee? Does it, does it replace uh, that kind of out-of-work welfare? That's a really good question. Thank you for asking it. No, the job guarantee is an additional program that can be added to um, the many support programs that we have for the unemployed. So you can choose. If you prefer to go on unemployment insurance, that is your um, option. But unemployment insurance tends to be short-lived and does not provide adequate income support. So 
my expectation is that a lot of people will actually choose the living wage job option. So it's it's an additional program. And by design, when somebody takes a living wage job option, then they um, don't tap these other benefits that they use when they're unemployed. So there will be savings that naturally will occur. There will be reductions in other programs that naturally will occur as a consequence. But this is not a, a sort of workfare where a person is denied their benefits unless and until they show up at the public employment office. And can you talk to me about what form these jobs might take? What type of jobs would they be? Yeah, because it's a public employment option, these jobs are in the public sector serving the public good. The way I speak of the program is as a, as a national care act, as a, as a policy that addresses some urgent care needs that people might have, as well as there will be jobs that take care of the environment. So you can think of putting in place green infrastructure. We can think of trees as modern green infrastructure. I mean, there's really good research on, on, on this, how important it is to um, do some basic rehabilitation and investment in our urban centers. So the job guarantee has always been a green job guarantee, has attempted to address um, conservation needs and also care needs, care for the elderly, care for the young. So on the former, it's really come of age when you think about the Green New Deal and what needs to be done to tackle the climate crisis. This is something that could really tap into that idea. Yeah, that's right. In the US, the job guarantee has been called perhaps the most crucial component of the Green New Deal. And there's good reason for that. The the Green New Deal is a, a vision for where we would like the economy to go. And that vision includes not just a clean environment, but also economic security. And the job guarantee is that that cornerstone, that that crucial piece. So what we are saying here is that in that transition, as we move away from old techniques of production, fossil fuel technology, to uh, new types of green jobs, we will provide a safety net for those who might be most vulnerable in this transition process. There may be some disruptions, people will lose their jobs. We will provide the guarantee of a living wage job. And in that sense, I think very naturally it fits in the Green New Deal project. And to what extent are or aren't these jobs stopgap jobs? I mean, could could they conceivably jobs that people stay in for, for life or for many years? Because it is a guarantee, um, and they can, but because unemployment yo-yos, um, the job guarantee will likely go through these moments of expansion and contraction. So if the private sector goes through lots of hiring and a lot of layoffs, then the employment program will have to do the same to match those changes in the private sector. I mean, if I had it my way, I would prefer that the public sector is adequately staffed and it fulfills its essential mission on an ongoing basis, and it doesn't depend on uh, employment volatility. So if we need to staff um, the Food and Drug Administration, the Environmental Protection Agency, with all of the experts that we need, then I would go ahead and do that. I will not rely on the job guarantee for those jobs. But the job guarantee um, really deals with people who experience the most precarious employment conditions, And so, in a sense, it will have to have a component that will be 
um, able to expand quickly and to also shrink quickly. And I think green work, environmental work, actually small infrastructure projects, they are um, quite amenable to this kind of fluctuations. You can you can do as much as as you want or as as little as uh, as you like. And can we talk a little bit about how this jobs guarantee, it could help, you know, if you're progressively minded, how it could be a real positive force, other goals like boosting wages and employment conditions and so, and so on. So as a public option, if it provides a base wage that's a living base wage, that becomes the standard for the economy. If a worker would like to transition into private sector work, then private employers will have to match the living wage, the base wage in the program. So in a sense, this program wage becomes the effective minimum wage. But we can also add to the wage benefit package um, things like Medicare for all, which would be Medicare rather, which is important for the case of the United States where we do not have universal coverage. And so if that becomes um, a standard of a wage benefit package, then the private sector will be pressured to meet that standard as well. So you could think about that in terms of hours worked and maybe maternity and paternity leave and pay and, and all those kinds of things. Absolutely. Um, are, are there any countries where they've tried something similar to this? Uh, I know there's been a program in Argentina. What, what do we know about where versions of this have been tried and, and what the outcomes have been? Yes, the Argentina program was very interesting because it was modeled after proposals developed in the United States. And it was, although it was uh, not a permanent policy, it was an emergency measure, it still employed about 13% of the labor force. That was in the depths of their crisis in the early 2000s. So it was quite significant. What was very interesting about the policy is that first, it, it showed that it can be up and running in relatively short period of time. It was, you know, within five, six months, projects were being designed, people were being employed. And the program did balloon because there is a lot of hidden unemployment. The official statistics don't tell the whole story. But as soon as it ballooned, it also began shrinking. So it showed a clear counter-cyclical um, effect. People did transition uh, into other private sector jobs as the economy robustly recovered. But what was for me more interesting is to see the transformative impact it had on, on people, on, on communities. They really participated in their own design of their own projects to tackle some very specific concerns that their communities had. And what was interesting is that as the program was being phased out, so long as the projects were still running, people kept going to those projects until until they were finally shut down. So it was very popular. And, and why were they shut down? Was it a change of government? It was a change of government and also it was a change of philosophy. The, the new government, um, I believe falsely, considered women to be unemployable because the, the program was really... Uh, it was targeted to heads of households, but the vast majority of participants were actually women. And so the argument of the new government was, well, you know, women have an enormous care burden. Uh, they should not be activated artificially and made to go to work. Of course, it, they were not made to go to work. They just showed up for work. There was, this was not a workfare program. And so the new government decided instead 
to give those families, those women, a basic income grant, which was higher than what the wage offered in the job guarantee in the in the employment program. And and you know what happened was people still kept going to their employment projects, even though um, they had a somewhat more generous income grant. And the reason was is because they derived so many other benefits from working beyond just the simple paycheck. And so, in a, in a sense, they valued this participatory model of project creation and employment creation um, until the funding was was then uh, cut off, and that they had solely the basic income to rely on. I want to talk about the fact that quite a few candidates in the Democratic primaries in the United States are supporting some form of a jobs guarantee uh, policy. Can you can you tell us a little bit about that, who's behind it, and why you think it's gaining traction in the United States? Yes, there are a number of, of candidates. Uh, probably the most ambitious plan is that of uh, Senator Sanders, Bernie Sanders, there is a proposal advanced by Senator Cory Booker um, to have 15 pilots throughout the country. And there are a lot of people who are running on the job guarantee platform as well. well the reason why it's, it's popular, I believe, is because the, the labor market has not been working uh, for everyone for a long time. I mean, we just had the employment numbers come out today. We are again at record low, historical low levels, but people understand that you know, there's still so many people outside of the labor force that have been discouraged by this very protracted jobless recovery. They they are there wishing to take up work and they are not captured by the real, uh, by the official numbers. But also the kind of jobs that we're creating are not living wage jobs. And so that resonates with people, um, economic security uh, through decent and dignified employment is popular. And, and on that subject, on the future of work, is there a relationship between the, the jobs guarantee and, say, universal basic income? Are they, is it an either-or situation? Could those things run alongside each other? Are they unrelated? You can conceive of a package that provides economic security for people that includes some combination of income support and employment support. The, the proposals, the job guarantee and the universal basic income guarantee, in a sense, aiming to do two separate things. The, the job guarantee says, look, there is shortage of jobs. There's shortage of decent, well-paid jobs. This is what this is the economic problem we will address. The job guarantee also recognizes there are going to be a lot of people who cannot work, should not work for whatever reason. And so it is situated within a system of support for all um, in the economy. So whether that would include universal child allowance, whether that will include generous retirement, um, affordable education, and on and on, there will be a package of income support programs that can strengthen the social wage, if you will. The universal basic income, however, I fear has resigned itself to this notion that, well, maybe jobs are, we cannot create jobs. They are going to be automated away, something I, I, a view that I don't particularly share, but there is a little bit of a surrender in that, in that notion that we just need to give people income and we cannot 
find another way of providing valuable and useful employment opportunities. The final thing I want to ask you about is we're building a utopia here on this podcast, a reason to be cheerful utopia called the Jeffocracy. If I, if I was to make you Minister for Employment here in the UK, with regards to the job guarantee, what is the first thing you would do on day one in the job? I think that the first thing to do really is to um, make the job guarantee into law, to enshrine the right to work into law, the way we did this with the Social Security Act in the United States in uh, 1935. There is one other program around the world that has a job guarantee that, that, as a matter of human right, that is in India. It's it's not truly universal uh, um, as, as I've been discussing it, but but it is on the books. It's it's a law. It's a mandate that has to be met. And so it will take a while to work all, work out all the kinks in these programs, but we need, must begin somewhere. And I think a law will protect the policy going forward um, and ensure that it's workable. Great. Let's legislate. Uh, Pavlina <laughs> Cherneva, thank you so much. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Well, Jeff, what do you think? I love it. I love it when we get an idea on that at first glance seems so big. You think, is, is this a bit bonkers? This is a bit, a bit too big. And uh, I really like it. Now, of course, you're a great economic mind and it's what you've studied and worked in. I don't think I've ever been called a great economic mind. Thank you very much. <laughs> You're a great broadcasting mind. Yeah, that's that's definitely never happened. Um, but I'm, I'm right in thinking, sort of in Keynesian economics, when there's a, a downturn, you pump the money into the yep. system to yep. to uh, you know create infrastructure that causes yeah, I'm a with boom. You so far, yeah, and it feels like this idea does that with labour to some extent. Well, that's a very interesting way of looking at it. Yeah, do you think it's a wrong way of looking at it? No, I think it's a very, very good, very clever way of looking at it, actually. Um, I mean, I think actually what I like about it is this idea that you find projects in the local area. I like the sort of decentralized nature of it. Mm. So, you know, when you think about Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal, it was about a sort of, yeah, I mean, there was a lot of local activity, but it was obviously run from the federal government. Some of it was big projects, some of it was smaller projects, artists and so on. But I think there's definitely a, a really interesting idea here about local authorities identifying what needs to be done or communities identifying what needs to be done in their particular communities and then getting people to do it. Labour did have something when we were in government called the Youth Jobs Guarantee, which was not – I mean, it was six months, but it was not totally dissimilar uh, to this for young people – um, and actually, lots of young people then got taken on to do long-term work. So it's slightly different because it was subsidised in the private sector. But but certainly the principle of guaranteeing jobs for young people was there. Uh, I think it's got real, real potential. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are tap the banner to go to monday.com quality sleep is essential that's why the sleep number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. If you've got thoughts on the job guarantee idea or indeed ideas for future episodes, we do love to hear from you. Please go to cheerfulpodcast.com. Uh, that's our uh, website. You can find ways to get in touch with us. We, we, we love to hear from you. Uh, please do also rate us, uh, five stars please, uh, on your um, podcast platform. Uh, this one comes from Fraser Hamilton, subject Ed's book recommendation and houseplants. I've just finished reading Normal People by Sally Rooney on Ed's recommendation. I can't thank him enough. I grew so attached to both the main characters and felt every emotional twist and turn with them. Does Ed know that it's being adapted for TV on BBC Three coming in 2020? I do now, Fraser. Thanks to all the team for putting together such a great podcast. It makes Monday morning commutes just a little bit easier. And then he's got an idea for us. I live in a first floor flat with no garden in the middle of town. I've recently built a small collection of houseplants. After some initial mishaps, I've come to really enjoy bringing some nature into my home. In fact, it does wonders for not only my respiratory health, but also my mental health. Should we all have plants in our homes like the NASA approved plants for improving indoor air quality? Just a suggestion. Wow, I didn't know NASA were approving plants. Can we do an episode from the International Space Station? Cape Canaveral. Yeah, tending plants in zero gravity. This comes from Pat Drake on the subject of air miles, who says, I returned to the UK from Australia by container ship earlier this year after seven years of living there. Wow. Pat also says, this summer I went on holiday in Europe by train, so I'm totally committed to sustainable travel where possible. And it was with surprise and dismay that I discovered on returning to the UK that passenger ferry services to Europe have been quietly becoming very discouraging. Sure, one can take one's car on a car ferry, but boat trains are no more, and making one's own arrangements to walk onto a ferry now involves long trails along roads, past barbed wire fences and the like access to northern europe by boat now means catching a commercial vessel because routine ferries are no more arising as a consequence of paranoia around illegal immigration it sure makes travel difficult the only train route is via eurostar and st pancras international is just as far from glasgow as is paris or brussels so i'm torn uh, because i feel that it would be so easy for the uk to be cut off uh, that it's important for us all to keep moving so whilst there needs to be some restriction on flying that also needs to be pressured to open up other options yeah i was thinking about that as we were talking about it last week how just what a difficult thing it is to navigate taking a train from the uk to anywhere other than brussels or paris to a large extent and how maybe that's something that should be being supported definitely yeah we need good alternatives yeah. this one comes from this was this is a tweet actually but i know you'll be really appreciative of it this is a tweet from joe stuck uh at joe stuck is this another one is this another bot that you've set up I don't think that's very nice about Joe. Okay. Um, she, she she is um, uh, a trainee advanced clinical practitioner in Greater Manchester and an appreciator of the Archers. Anyway, she has posted a picture and it says this. Salford University have introduced a... Oh, God, oh, no. no Make your own sandwich bar. The future has arrived. And there's even a picture of the Make Your Own Sandwich Bar. Self-service, substation, fillings and sauces. It's got the sort of different 
you know pricing structure honestly it's so interesting isn't it this is this is where the trends are going i think we should run a sweepstake on how long before it shuts down (laughs) i think it's there to stay honestly (laughs) i give it six months i give it longer send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com find us on facebook or tweet at cheerful podcast and as part of our cheerful people series i'm delighted to say that we're now joined by amica george who's an activist and founder of the free periods campaign amica thanks so much for joining us thanks for having me really good to speak to you so I think some of our listeners will know a bit about the Free Periods campaign and your, your incredible success. But, but tell us a little bit about the story behind the setting up of it and what it's achieved. Sure. So I started it in at the beginning of 2017 after reading about girls in the UK having to miss school because they were suffering from period poverty. And I'm really fortunate to have never suffered from it myself. But I read about girls um, across across the country having to miss school for a week every month because they couldn't afford pads or tampons or they were going to school using alternatives like toilet paper or tissue or newspaper, um, the sleeves of old T-shirts, things like that, to just, just to get an education. And that's what really horrified me. There are people living in real abject poverty and girls are literally too poor to go to school. And you didn't just read about it, but then what's extraordinary is you then, you know, you, 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 you acted exactly so I kind of just I talked to my friends and family about it and no one had really heard of it and no one was doing anything about it so I decided to start a campaign online um, and I called it free periods and the idea was that the government I believe that the government should provide free menstrual products in all schools and colleges um, to end period poverty and it took quite a long time it took about two and a half years we I was doing a lot of campaigning um, in between doing my A-levels and I received a lot of support online um, mainly from teenage girls getting involved but I wasn't seeing that same level of um, enthusiasm or interest from Parliament so we organised a protest outside Downing Street in December 2017 which was attended by over 2,000 young people shouting about periods and didn't really... um, produce much of an effect from the government um, and then in at the beginning of 2018 I of 2019 sorry I launched a legal case to say that the government under the Equality Act has a legal obligation to provide the products for free because all children should have equal access to education and obviously if one in ten girls have struggled to afford menstrual products that's that's not equal access at all um, and then in April of 2019 the gov- before we launched the legal case the government made the pledge Um, Philip Hammond in his spring statement said that from early 2020 all schools and colleges in England will be provided with free pads and tampons which is great news so we're kind of waiting to see how um, how that goes and the impact of that and yeah that's where we are at the moment. That's that's amazing I mean how how did you 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 read about this and to go from that to campaigning and building a, a, a potential legal case. I mean, how, how did you equip yourself with the kind of knowledge and support? For me, it wasn't, I never kind of anticipated it getting as big as it did. And I think almost two years, like over two years down the line, I didn't, I, part of me was thinking, I don't know if it will ever really happen because I kind of thought I'd exhausted all means of um, campaigning and activism. And then somebody approached me and said, you know, have you thought about doing, going through the legal route and saying that the government actually is breaking the law by failing to provide the products? And that 
in the end, we didn't actually go through with that case, but we did. Um, yeah, we planned to in the UK. Did you get any sense that the, the, the planning to go through with it was perhaps the thing that forced the government's hand or changed their mind? Yeah, I have got that impression that in the last few years, especially, we have seen this kind of resurgence of women kind of talking about periods in a very political sense and talking about the fact that the government's ignorance of period poverty is a form of um, of misogyny and the sidelining of women's issues. And I think that's that's what really kind of made them re- respond. And looking forward, we're hoping to kind of expand that across Europe and see if maybe we can launch a similar legal case um, to try and say that the EU should have an obligation um, to ensure that all its member states have free products in all school and college bathrooms because it's obviously not something that's exclusive to the UK at all. Just in terms of the success you had in the UK, because I think it'll be interesting for our listeners, what talk us through the sort of ups and downs of this. I mean, what, I, I suppose, what, what do you think in the end made the difference and, and, and what were some of the highs and sort of lows of this? Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, I started it in 2017 when I was um, 17 years old. And so for me, the struggle was always kind of balancing it with school and also potentially not being taken very seriously as a teenager um kind of I got a lot of messages online saying oh you're just a typical teenager you know you want everything for free there's no such thing as period poverty and that was definitely something that really held me back but actually the thing that pushed me through and enabled me I think to be successful in the end was just the community that that was built around the whole campaign just from the first few weeks of starting it I was contacted by women all around the world and mainly girls young girls who were just so enthusiastic and passionate and said you know I've posted it on Instagram I've put it in my Twitter bio I've sent it to all my friends I've sent it to all my friends parents I've sent it to all my teachers what more can I do and it was just so inspiring to see that and that's why I decided to organize the protest um two years ago so when when the 2,000 people kind of descended outside Theresa May's window in December 2017 that was kind of the def- a definite high for me And tell us about your free period stories campaign, which I think you're running. The idea is that throughout the campaign, I didn't really set out to address this, but it just kind of happened organically that I found myself being asked a lot about the period taboo and coming to the conclusion that the reason that it took the government two and a half years to um, address period poverty is because periods are still so stigmatised in society and something that people are just really unwilling to talk about whether you have a period or you're not everyone lowers their voice when periods come up in conversation and we're told to slip tampons up our sleeves as if they're you know kind of secret and shouldn't be visible the idea of free period stories was to encourage people to share any kind of funny or awkward or meaningful period experiences online on social media and it was amazing to see the variety of stories you know from some from people using accidentally using um sanitary pads to tap out of the tube and being really embarrassed (laughs) (laughs) to people actually saying I've suffered all my life with extremely painful, extremely heavy periods and always thought that was normal because I never even talked to my mum about them. And only kind of in my 30s, I realised that actually my period was abnormal, went to the doctor and got diagnosed with endometriosis or another kind of quite serious illness. So I think it's really important that we all kind of talk about periods, not just because it's, you know, overcoming the taboo, but it's actually can be quite dangerous to live um to just live through, live through quite debilitating periods.
What are the lessons that you would draw, Amica, from your campaign? And, and what advice would you give to others, you know, maybe who are campaigning or interested in campaigning on a different subject, see an injustice and think, I want to do something about it, but don't quite know how to go about it or think, what difference can I make and so on? For me, the, one of the main lessons I learned was just the importance of using the internet and social media. I think being a teenager when I started it, it seemed so natural to me to just, when I felt angry about an issue or passionate about making change um, around something, I would immediately post it online or send it to my friends on WhatsApp or um, retweet it. There's just strength in numbers by building this huge community of people with different skills and access to different contacts and different resources. I think that's that's when you show that you're more than just a single individual and part of a bigger community of passionate people who want to see change. Um, And also, I just think having the hardest part is starting. For me, I just kind of was potentially a bit naive and didn't really realise what I was getting into when I started. It started as a change.org petition in 2017. But I think just taking that first step and having the courage to stand up and speak about an issue, even if it is quite stigmatised or if it is seen as a taboo, um, I don't think that that should hold you back. And for our listeners who are hearing you talk and think, I would like to get involved in this, what can they do to support your campaign? So the main thing is um, to follow us on social media, um, on Instagram, Twitter, and we also have a website that we are collecting donations um, through as well because we're hopefully trying to raise money for a potential European legal case. Um, The other thing I would always say is to just encourage people to talk about their periods as often and as openly as possible, no matter how kind of graphic or um, detailed your stories may be, I think, having that conversation with somebody who potentially feels a bit reluctant to open up is is just the best thing to do and immediately once you mention the word period it's like a it's like an icebreaker and inevitably everyone has has a story to share and I think that's breaking the stigma and smashing the taboo around periods is for me one of the key things we need to do in terms of achieving gender equality because when you have an issue that only affects half the world's population and the other half feels like they can't feel like they can't really get involved in it or can't really engage um that inevitably separates us as as a society and i think if we live in a world where people who don't menstruate if they feel like they can talk openly about periods then i think that's a world in which we've achieved gender equality Amica George, it's at Free Periods. Uh, People should uh, follow you and get involved. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Thanks for your time. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, we're in the outro. Here we are. And and it's all changed for the next few weeks because you are on the campaign trail with your... All change. With your non-stick... All change. All change. You're very good at that. They say that. Is that a British Rail that used to say that? I think so. I think it's when a, when a train reaches uh, its terminus, isn't it? Yeah. They don't say it anymore, do they? We're sounding quite nostalgic today. We're like nostalgic for Rosette, Penny for the Guy, mm. and all change, all change. Do you sound a little bit like Frank Sidebottom when you do that? Don't I sound more like a first-class return to Dottingham, please? Oh, the old uh, the advert for, for lozenges. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, there are other lozenges available. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, back to back to all change. Yes, but that's that's what you said. But anyway, all change for the next few weeks because Ed is he's on the campaign trail. So you're still going to be here on the podcast. We're going to check in with you every Definitely. week, get updates. I'm going to become a guest. Well, kind of. I mean, it's it's more you're you're a roving correspondent from the 
front line of electioneering, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah that's true. I'm a roving, that's good. Ro- yeah. Roving correspondent. There's going to be a, sort of like an, an on the road component to it. On the road. This is good. I like yeah, it. Yeah, this, this is it. We're going to hear about the people you've you've met and the conversations you've been having and yeah. so on. Because, you know, famously, uh, yeah. the, the last time around, somebody asked you, uh, if you if you worship Satan. When you knocked on their front door, yes. they were. Con- I mowed somebody's lawn. Yeah. So I feel that there's going to be gold from the campaign trail. Called the bingo. Yeah, and then then beyond that, we're, we're going to pivot into. I mean, it will still be very much reasons to be cheerful, but perhaps pivoting slightly into a an, an election version of reasons to be cheerful. So uh, that that's for the next few weeks. But we will be here, come rain or shine, won't we? That's right. Yes. Uh, we should thank our guests. I'd like to thank our guests, Lord Robert Skidelsky, Pavlina Chernova, and Amica George. Emma Caution produces our podcast with backup and research from Joel Pierce and Joe Kenyon. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. James Deacon made the eye dents. We did ask last week if anybody wanted us to uh, to credit them with not designing the artwork alongside Emily Power, but we, we didn't get any takers on that. So we will. Well, it's still available. The slot's available. <laughs> it's hugely available. If you want, it's like a birthday or a you know hi mom yeah marriage proposal from someone marriage proposal like on the sort of jumbotron american all these things yeah we we, you know the the slot is there for you so do do write in uh, reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com or find us you know all the ways that you can by going to cheerfulpodcast.com the website will tell you how to get in touch with us but you know what we haven't yet done we haven't yet credited the man who did design the new artwork henry cull well you know, given the Star Wars business, I'm I'm still I'm still thinking. But in the meantime, he's been Chewbacca, he's been C3PO, and these have been reasons to be cheerful. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.